And the current evidence on endurance performance at the highest level suggests that VO2 max, it, the training to improve your VO2 max does not correlate with significantly improving your performance in a already trained person. In fact, certain training regimens may decrease your VO2 max, but ultimately improve your performance based on objective metrics. Uh, so that particular instance, you're talking about power output, which is muscular strength, force production and strength endurance. I mean, that's like a, you know, that's like a CSCS type question. It's like, so the CSCS is a certification you can get through the NSCA. It's trash. Things trash. But that'd be a question that they would ask. So, um, which I think, so, uh, I don't know if you have anything to add other than the state of endurance athletic coaching and training as it pertains to strength training is very low. Like, it's just not very good. If you wanted a resource on that stuff, The Science of Running by Magnus is great. Uh, it's a really good book. It's funny because the first few chapters of it read like practical programming. And you're like, did Rip write this? I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's, he doesn't like running. You know? Did you, he tell you the story about how he squat? So he squatted 500 for five sets of five and then ran a 5K under 20 minutes in the same day just because he was young? That's legit. This is his young story. <laughs> right. It's like, just because I could. Yeah. And That's I was like, I've never done either of those things. <laughs> I think I've squatted 500 by 5 by 5 once, mm -hmm. but I've never ran a sub 25K. Nope. Same. Yeah. It's That's fast. fast. Well, ish. Ish. For, <laughs> For a non 5K you know. specialist. Yeah. Yeah. So, how well controlled is her lupus? Is the first question. Like, what medicines is she on and stuff like that? Yeah, so that's real good because that's a consideration, right? So, Plaquenil, standard medicine used to treat lupus. Prednisone is oftentimes involved, but when it comes to resistance training, the less often you can be on prednisone, the better because it's directly catabolic, right? So, <laughs> temporarily makes you feel euphoric borderline psychotic well uh so the most so so the most important thing in terms of optimizing training outcomes is going to be making sure her disease is controlled in my opinion at any point if you have you know flares or uncontrolled disease like training becomes secondary because disease flares can be life-threatening in in in, in, the, in that condition, so disease needs to be controlled. So if she's having a lot of daily symptoms that could be related to uncontrolled lupus, then that's something to obviously talk to a rheumatologist about. If, from their perspective, her lab work, her double-stranded DNA levels, all that kind of stuff, she's like good and well controlled, then yeah, she can definitely train. The problem is that if you are going to put her on something that expects and plans constantly, you know, regularly increased levels of performance session to session, you can't necessarily expect those yeah. in someone in that situation, which is kind of what you're alluding to, right? Yeah. So that's basically where, you know, if she, you know, we've been talking about RPE, right? Mm -hmm. The concept of autoregulation 
where you adjust the weight based on what's there on a given day. That's where this becomes especially useful, yep. right? Yep. Because what if you tell her, hey, you need to add five pounds to what you did last time, and she's like, my legs are shaking, I can barely get out of bed, yep. and, you're, and, and what are you going to be like? Do you not care about training? <laughs> get under there and do it, you know? Like, well, not yes. going to work. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, like, she's going to go train. But you have to be realistic about it, right? So that's where this kind of thing, whether you use RPE or if you're not into RPE and you want to use some sort of concept of error bars around a percentage, you want to adjust the load on a given day, give her a lighter day on a bad day, and then take advantage of a heavier day when she's able to tolerate that, then that's what you need to do. But you need to introduce some form of autoregulation to her training like immediately. That would be the way to go. So control the disease, autoregulate her training, Squats. I mean, she needs to get stronger. Yeah. And if she really wants, I mean, if if so, outside of outside of the strength stuff, if stairs for some reason, like let's say you double her squat, say, and she still has trouble with stairs, I don't expect that that's going to be the case. But say it is, then maybe you need to treat stairs as a skill and have her practice taking stairs. Oh, I don't know your occupational therapist. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's lower extremities, so that'd be PT. PT, not, ah, not ah, OT. Ah. Yeah. So muscle soreness occurs as a function of eccentric muscular contraction, so that's muscle lengthening, right? And which you, uh, so muscle damage is occurs as a sequelae of the eccentric uh, portion of the contraction, which stimulates an infl inflammatory cascade. That inflammatory cascade is necessary to promote muscle healing and remodeling. All of the, yeah, what's that? Not growth. Well, well healing and remodeling can be growth under the correct situation. Correct situation is that you have enough protein on board, you don't have a net catabolic effect of something else going on, all right? So for instance, you could be crushed in a car accident and have a ton of muscle breakdown and subsequent <laughs> inflammatory response. You're not going to get jacked from that. Not going to get jacked. <laughs> uh, would not recommend that. Yeah, would not recommend that for like general jackitude. But if you want, uh, so what happens though after so you have this eccentric damage, uh, you have the inflammatory cascade, so muscle growth, remodeling, recovery. Um, effectively, the inflammatory cytokines that are attracted to the area cause localized muscle pain, which is the soreness that you feel. And ultimately, that perception of soreness reduces your acute performance. So for instance, if you feel sore, if I ask you, do you feel sore? And you respond affirmatively. And then I ask you to do something with those muscles, you feel sore, you're going to perform worse than a few things. One, if I don't even ask you if you're sore, just ask you to perform. No right. SIBO. Yeah, I know SIBO do you by, <laughs> by asking you if you're sore, you said yes, you do worse. Uh, thing two, is if I give you a little more time to recover, but not enough time where I would expect you to recover 100%. So the next day, for instance, you perform better. Right. Nothing will tamp that down. There's nothing that you can do in the short term to make that, recover, that recovery go faster. Well, anabolic steroids. And yeah. getting conditioned to that stimulus and the repeated bout effect. Yeah, which doesn't mean that process, that process just occurs faster. Right. It still occurs, but it occurs 
more quickly because it's less of a stress, you're more conditioned to it, you're better adept at handling it. And so and that's, just, that's basically what everyone here has experienced, right? The first time you do it, you're sore. Then the next time you're less, the next time less, eventually you don't get sore anymore. That's right. what we're talking about with this like repeated bad effect kind of deal. Yeah. But out, the, the point I'm making is that people are going to try to sell you a whole lot of stuff to reduce the late onset muscle soreness. We just got some email that, that got, you sent me a message about some product that they're trying to sell to reduce delayed onset muscle soreness and stuff like that. And most of that stuff doesn't. It's yours. Then you're just noceboing yourself. Yeah. Just oh, <laughs> typically, typically a workout that makes you sore has a handful of different components. One, <clears throat> either pre, a bunch of pre-existing fatigue such that the workout that you just did, you incurred an additional amount of fatigue and that was too much for you to tolerate the, at, the, at the time, which is why you're noticing your soreness more than before. Two, the workout is comprised of a novel or new stimulus to you with a significant either volume component, eccentric component, or both. So say for instance, you've been squatting three sets of five, three times a week, very diligently because you're an extra athlete now, and now you're into strength stuff, right? And then someone's like, come across it with me, and you're like, fine, and then you do, and they have you do 100 squat, air squats, because you're like, I do squats, it's totally fine, and you do 100, and then you're wrecked. Your legs are destroyed, right? Like, board, you have to use a wheelchair. And you're like, why am I so sore? It's like, well, you just did a ton of volume that you are not previously accustomed to, even though you had squatted before. So, so usually that is the mechanism by which you feel sore. It's either new, so unusual exercise. Let's say you've never done lunges before. Do a bunch of lunges. Ah, my butt's sore. Yeah, it's new to you. Okay. Or the volume is excessive, far greater than you previously experienced. You used to three sets of five. Now you do 100. General badness. Yeah. Uh, an interesting, a good description of it that I've heard. Uh, so I've recommended a lot of people for a lot of this pain science stuff that we've talked about to go to painscience.com, exclude the trigger point stuff that he talks about, and read the rest. Uh, his description, he has an article on delayed onset muscle soreness. He actually describes it as nature's tax on exercise. Just can't get around it. It's just going to happen. Oh, no. That's, nope. No, that's, the answer to that is fire that coach. <laughs> yeah. That's the answer. Yeah. Yeah, that's the answer is fire that coach. Oh, it's sore. It's good. It means it works. That's like... Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. The function of sweating, the reason why you sweat or don't sweat at a given workout is due to the ambient temperature, your previous conditioning level, yeah. previous environment, humidity, exposure. I would not... So not a useful parameter. No. As far as it actually affecting management. Like, oh, it hurts. Good. To the extent that you are in a caloric deficit, you will not stop losing weight. Until you're right. I mean, because you're in a caloric deficit, right? So by so definition, yeah. If you stop losing weight, losing weight, something has happened to make the caloric deficit no longer exist, right? So either you're eating more, or something from the metabolic standpoint has changed, or. such that that deficit has been abolished, which is what you're referring to. So there's actually more research than you would think on this. It's kind of interesting. And actually the vast majority of the metabolic changes that uh, result in that situation from the long-term caloric deficit actually come from a reduction in what's called NEAT. Have you heard of NEAT? Non-exercise -ac non activity thermogenesis, which just refers to your daily activity, moving around. So the amount of moving around that you do on a daily basis, that burns activity. You know, you guys all waking up this morning, walking around your hotel room or whatever, going to your car, 
walking into the gym, just walking around this place, walking to lunch, fidgeting around, standing up. No one wants to sit, you guys, doing some non-exercise activity, thermogenesis over there, going to the bathroom and back, all that stuff. That level of activity goes down. Why does it go down? Your brain governs that stuff, right? Your hypothalamus controls everything. Yeah, it's just, so it's, it's preserving just, your brain mass. saying, hey, homeostasis, you need to stop losing weight because it's not in the interest of your brain, from your brain's perspective, right, for you to waste away. So it reduces your volitional, or not, you know, not your non-volitional, kind of fidgeting around, moving around. So that is the, ma the majority of that metabolic alteration. So you're not permanently metabolically damaged. Yeah, you need not. But so people always want to argue this calories in, calories out business, like not being real. Like that's not true. It is how the body works. But the examples they use fail to recognize the variables on either end of that equation. So here, the reason that uh, the weight loss has stalled is the calories out side of the equation has been altered by reduced activity. Even though they want to continue losing weight, right? But their activity has declined, calories out has declined, that caloric deficit has been abolished, so you stop losing weight. And then they freak out and they think they're permanently metabolically damaged and they want to reverse diet and get their calories way back up and then they gain a bunch of body fat. <laughs> well, it's certainly a good way to sell stuff. Yeah. Or like, so that's the you know, thing. connect with a bunch of people who dieted incorrectly for a show but have underlying eating disorders and yes. then binge after the show and gain a bunch of weight and wondered why that occurred. Yeah. Really. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, so if that happened to her, she needs to... Which just needs to train. Maintain her activity level. Eat correctly. <coughs> Most of the, yeah. She'll be fine. She'll be fine. Make sure she doesn't have an eating disorder, though. Yeah. If she does, you probably shouldn't be working with her. Okay. You should check. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Say what? So, you would make the argument that the force production requirements of the second scenario, the guy pushing the weighted sled, all right, that the force production requirements are higher than the person running, okay? And therefore, the fatigue of that would be higher than the running. You could, then the second argument you would make is that that fatigue, as it pertains to strength adaptations, is, are more, is more specific to improving strength than just running at a fast pace. But I would make the third argument. <laughs> if you had three guys yeah. arguing in a room with one another, right. this is how it would go. <laughs> but the third argument I would make is that that's still a non-specific stress because it is sustained force production over a period of time and not like interval-based anaerobically uh, uh, focused training. So to be clear, I would not program either of those in a strength trainee's program. I would only program the first, so somebody running with a heart rate of 180 beats per minute in an endurance athlete where running was a significant component of their performance. I would only program the second in a CrossFit or strongman athlete where sled pushing for a sustained period of time was a, period, was a tested portion of their conditioning because there are better ways to condition that are less fatiguing, that interfere less with your strength development. Right? So if I just want somebody to do cardio to increase their caloric output so that they lose weight, 
right? If that's the function of the cardio, I'm gonna keep their heart rate between 65 and 75% of their uh, max heart rate. So 120 to 130 beats per minute for you know people in RH demographic for, for you, right? So I wouldn't have them at 180. I would have, they'd be like- Pretty high. Yeah. I'm looking at it as a- Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so right, so, so your function of running Right, so your function right, so your function of running is the PT test. <laughs> and my management of that would be, you know, depending on how it, it, if I have a guy like you, so what was your last PFT score? Nine. So high. Good. It was good. And how long ago was that? Well, it's not, I'm not saying that you got you maxed it out, but you're no danger of failing the test. It's not hard test yeah. What's that? It's not hard test. Well that, but I'm saying what what I'm getting at is that you have room to spare. Right? At the same time, it's not governing your pay, like you're doing okay. And when was the last time you were tested? August. So a fairly recent, very reasonable performance in your PFT suggests to me that your baseline ability to perform in that test without specific training, you can likely pass the test just fine. If you wanted to improve, just to you know, shut somebody up, I would not need a long time to train you for that. Four weeks. If you had somebody who failed it the first time around, right, and is very far away from doing a good job on that test, and that test basically earns them an income, I would take a longer period of time to train those specific things. Because the specific things that you're training in order to perform well on that test are compromising your strength performance. And unless you really care about your PFT over your strength performance for you know development over the long term, well, right. But if you if you did if you <laughs> did <laughs> yeah if you did then it'd be reasonable to to program that regularly, right? But since that's not the case, I would only do it four weeks out from the test, and I would understand that that period of time your strength training is going to be compromised and program your strength stuff accordingly. Yeah, but I would not program that for regular conditioning. I would either program stuff that's, again, more on this lower RPE scale, lower heart rate scale, that's low intensity steady state stuff, or it would be high intensity interval training with breaks. So 20 seconds all out sprint, two minute break, three minute break, something like that. Um, because both the latter, you know, uh, basically is directly correlate to uh, direct, uh, you know, a direct benefit to strength training if you're going to allow that fatigue to enter your training cycle, right? So it's you know very directly applicable to strength training, whereas the former is not very fatiguing and unlikely to compromise your training. Well, I know the study of the basically took powerlifters and their non-powerlifter age match controls, and they did MRIs of their spine and show that the powerlifters indeed did have a greater amount of herniations or disc defects on MRI, but had lower incidences of low back pain. Well, right, you know, so they're not following them like to the death. I don't know about any quality of life yeah. studies related. So I don't to know. I don't know specific studies on this, but the other, but there's a few. There would be a few necessary follow-up questions to that because you asked studies on them quote wearing their joints out, right? What does that mean? Jesus, because it could be salt off you. Yeah. <laughs> because remember, I talked about radiographic osteoarthritis during my lecture, X-ray evidence of it, versus clinical 
symptomatic, clinically symptomatic osteoarthritis, right? So let's say you take a bunch of powerlifters, you know, or washed up powerlifters who competed 30 years ago, and you x-ray their knees, and they look like shit, but they've been super strong for their whole life because they built up a massive amount of muscle mass, their quads are nice and strong, so they don't tend to have as much clinically symptomatic osteoarthritis. Well, who cares, right? And even if they did have that, what are you gonna do about it? Not train? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what I'm getting at is the important, the, 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 the better question to be asking, I suppose, is to what extent does this sort of training, particularly when you say powerlifting, because powerlifting has a different meaning than strength training, right? Training for one RM maximal performance on a platform. Does that result in symptomatic osteoarthritis in your future? Wearing it out, that phrase connotes a need for joint replacement, right? So you're taking it kind of far down the rabbit hole, and I'm not aware of any studies on that, but my guess would be no. Yeah. Uh, well, all right. I'll, I'll field this okay. grenade. <laughs> <laughs> He's jumping on it. Yeah, yeah, I'm jumping on the grenade. My take is that the pursuit of as much strength that can be developed without taking undue risks to the person pursuant to that strength is likely the best course of action. So for instance, if I pumped you through with a bunch of PEDs, you could get stronger. But I don't think the risk that comes with taking the PEDs is outweighed by the benefit of the strength gained whilst taking them, all right? So that, that same thing holds throughout the compromises we're willing to make for your training. If you were my client, would I regularly have you test your 1RM? Probably not. Would I regularly have you engage, you know, in, uh, in training near and or above 95%? No. And, and I think it's all just risk-benefit. Yeah, it, it might be motivating for you to hit heavy singles every now and again. That's what turns you on, gets you up in the morning, brag to your buddies about. Uh, that might get me more business. But the compromise is that I have a feeling that they may compromise your long-term development, long-term health status. So um, in any event, I think that's how we, my, I view all this stuff. How strong should you get? I think as strong as you can until you compromise other health parameters. Yeah, the other, the other side of that consideration is what is maintenance as you get older? No, it's not a thing, right? To the extent that you quote, train for maintenance as you get older, you get weaker. You yeah. live it or you die. Yeah. If you ain't first, you last. You last. <laughs> well, that's stupid. Thought I was probably high when I said that. You could be second, third, fourth. That's right. So, yeah, I don't. I don't encourage people, or you know, I don't encourage the idea of training for maintenance. Uh, you know, if if you know, I'm not working with somebody who's pursuing true, you know, competition or one RM goals or something. I need to find some other parameter that I'm trying to make up, make make up, make go up over time. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, because otherwise, how do you program? You're like, I'm trying to program you to get stronger, but we've agreed that you're not trying to get stronger, so. Yeah, just squat the same weight every week. Yeah. I, I would, yeah, so, so but here's the, the side of that. So he says he's trying to save off death. He has not maintained his strength in the past 10 years. Hasn't. So if that was the goal, you know. 
Yeah, I'm under no delusion that there is a significant difference in the training risks that I will be I would be willing to take as a coach or as a trainee, as a competitive lifter, like going to meets regularly because that's what turns my crank, versus somebody who has no aspirations of going to a meet but still wants to live their best life. They're just different compromises that I'd be willing to make. Um, and I'm not saying that makes either person good, bad, stupid, healthy, unhealthy, but as far as that is concerned, it's just two different contexts. But I also agree that the maintenance thing is shenanigans. Shenanigans. But interestingly, if you wanted to maintain your current level of strength till death do you part, it's going to require that you train rather frequently with a sufficient amount of volume at the correct intensity the rest of your life. Yep. I want to make sure that the picture you have in your mind of pursuing the most strength possible is not the version of you that's 10 years older than you are right now, just grinding an absolute death, you know, bone on bone, as Jordan likes to say, heavy single in your training. There's no need for you to do that ever again. No need for you to grind as hard as you possibly can ever again, Yeah. if that's your goal. No voluntary right? hardship needed. But you, <laughs> but you need to be training with the other variables appropriately managed. I take it, are you talking about yourself? You've had no symptoms? Asking for a friend. Yeah. You've, you've had no symptoms? Yeah. Sounds awesome. great. Yeah. Congratulations. You're like, am I weird? <laughs> or... <laughs> Wait. No, yeah, that's great. Like, you know what I did notice? This, the... No, I mean, that happens. And as it pertains to strength training, well, the deal with menopause is you're no longer producing estrogen. You're no longer getting the bone protective effects. The risk for osteoporosis goes way up, way up. So what do you think you should be doing? Exactly what you've been doing here all weekend. Yeah. That's the consideration. I don't really worry about much more. No. Uh, it. What's you know most interesting? So for this particular seminar, Austin and I. I mean, I, I would hate to hazard a guess to how many actual studies we've like <laughs> reviewed. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and I wouldn't be to surprised. To prepare two-hour lectures. I wouldn't be surprised if we're worth a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So any in any event, plus the up-to-date thing. I mean, we're just the number is high of studies. It is unusual how many studies are done in postmenopausal women of some, you know, sect, like postmenopausal obese women, postmenopausal non-obese women, postmenopausal women with, you know, their third digit shorter than their second <laughs> digit. <laughs> yeah, resist, yeah, it's well, yeah. I will advise then, if you're interested in that, there's a brand new trial came out just this year, 2017. The abbreviation or the acronym, as all these trials have, is the Lift More trial. Sounds good, right? L-I-F-T-M-O-R. If you're interested to look it up. They took a group of something like around 100 or so postmenopausal women, average age of 65. A quarter of them had actually had a prior osteoporotic fracture, actually broken a bone from osteoporosis. All of them had osteopenia or osteoporosis. That's very low, very low bone density. They randomized them to two groups. One group did a resistance training regimen of squats, overhead presses, and deadlifts. Five sets of five, around 80% of their 1RM. Not bad. Not bad. They weren't doing... The control group did a unsupervised home calisthenic regimen designed to improve flexibility and mobility. Quote from the trial, just based on memory, give or take. Yeah, the strength training group obviously did way better. There were not any adverse events during the trial in terms of fracture. Nobody broke a bone. Um, 
got way stronger, their functional performance improved a whole bunch more. Um, so pretty cool trial. There are some caveats to it that we'll probably, maybe we'll write about it in the newsletter or something that we send out. I'll have to write a little more about it. But there's growing research on this stuff. The problem has been that for the longest time, people were super hesitant to train to study high-intensity training in osteoporotic uh, you're patients because you're yeah. just afraid to cause a fracture. But now we're starting to have these higher-intensity uh, interventions, meaning lifting heavier weights. And in the research literature, high intensity is anything over 60%, basically. Right. right. For us here, high intensity is like 90%, right? The research literature, that's like not studied. 60% or higher is high intensity. So for them to study barbell training at 80% is like unheard of. So that was a pretty cool study that they did. So, so yeah. you should train. Yeah. Should take this weekend. Yo, did you? Yeah. I didn't have her once. Perfect press. I like I was gonna have her on the press, but you stole her. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. This is a funny story. So I I started racing dirt bikes when I was fifteen. Alright? I wanted to start much earlier. My dad raced dirt bikes, worked on dirt bikes, dad's the coolest person I know, so I'll be like my dad. But my mom at the time thought that's too dangerous. So I started racing bicycles, like BMX. I broke both wrists, shoulder dislocation, like so many injuries, you know, and weird stuff. And then when I started racing dirt bikes, I only had one injury, the hip. Just a catastrophic hip. Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> like, oh no, I had so many injuries. Yeah. Look, I was in the middle of Ohio, Dayton, Ohio. It was freezing cold outside, but the track was inside. We always went there in the winter so we could race. The gate, you line your front wheel up against, and you're balancing on the pedals, was a magnet. All right? And what happens to magnets when it gets really cold? Stop working as well. But anyway, the cadence goes off, all right? and you try to time it so you can get you know, a good start. The gate didn't drop. I hit the gate with my front tire. I flip over the front. My hands are dangling over the thing. And then the gate falls. Flips me all the way over. <laughs> breaks both wrists. <laughs> and I'm stuck at the gate. You know, I'm <laughs> pinned. Also, I'm still attached to my bike because my feet are clipped in. Anyway, uh, I get up. I, you know, I can't pick anything up because my wrists are disfigured and broken. <laughs> and uh, I asked my dad. I was like, "Hey, what do you think we should? Should we go to the hospital?" He goes, "Nah, you're fine." So we drove home to St. Louis six hours. I'm in my jersey because I can't take it off. And he's like, "Are you gonna take your jersey off so I can wash it?" I'm like, "I don't think I can, I can move <laughs> my, my hands." <laughs> that never happened with dirt bikes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a hit. Fine. I'm good now. Sure. Now that's a good uh that's a good observation question. And so here's how here's where it came from. Uh year is 2015 in Westminster, Maryland. Uh we're talking about women's programming in the QA with Rip. And it was interesting because somebody somebody asked Hey, what should I do? You know, it sounds, it seems like my female clients seem to run out their LP a little faster. What's a, what do you recommend? He's like, you should just do five triples instead of three sets of five because women who on the, are on that non-athletic side of the scale tend to do better with a little bit higher weight. The idea being that women are missing the both chronic and acute effects of testosterone at the level of their neuromuscular junction, so their connection between their brain to the muscle. So they cannot actually recruit all of that muscle mass at the same time as manifested by 
if you take a female and you say, what's your 1RM bench press? If you had, well, what is it? Uh, Four or five. Well, you just did, no, no, no. You did 95 for a set of five. So, <laughs> so what I'm getting at, what I'm getting, and, and your, so your 1RM is probably like one, you know, that you've actually ever done. Okay. But so, yeah, so let's say, let's say that it's 115 or so, and you can do 95 for a set of five. That is a very high percentage to be able to do a set of five at, and that is not unusual with females, okay? It doesn't mean it happens all the time. It just means that for many females who do not have the high testosterone, who are not on that athletic end of the spectrum, that they are not able to produce that no, you know, true one rep max and can do reps at a higher percentage of their one rep max than they otherwise could. All right, which led Rip to believe that if they trained triples instead of fives, they would be getting exposed to higher intensity weights, heavier weights, right, for the same amount of volume, and that they could use that for a little while. Uh, interestingly, I did that as well, unbeknownst that Rip and I were doing the same thing, and Reynolds did that. So another starting strength coach. We all ended up doing that. And, and it was funny because at the Westminster seminar, we're all there and we like, came, you know, each said this thing that was the same, but from different perspectives. We're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, we're all, that's, that's a good idea. So that was before I started thinking about this athletic spectrum sort of thing, all right? So since then, I still think that's a reasonable recommendation if a person has not identified themselves as a high, uh, uh, more athletic female. So a more athletic female typically behaves like a more characteristic male under the barbell, in which case I would not switch to threes. I would just do fives, right? And uh, that's just because they've shown themselves to respond better to program, to the training already. The testosterone levels are probably higher. Their shoulders are broader, narrower hips. That All these things kind of rule them into saying, eh, probably don't need this female-specific programming. The other interesting thing is it's only for a few weeks. It takes your linear progression from what would be eight or nine weeks to 12 or 13 weeks. Well, it's not that it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's useless. It just means that it's for, for like six more months. It's for a short period of time, and you may find some benefit out of it. I don't re you typically recommend that males do it unless they're on that accountant end of the spectrum that we talked about earlier. Well, again, just because they can't typically perform a very high intensity. Uh, sorry, they, they typically uh, can't really manifest that true one rep max. An interesting aside to, to that, I am more convinced now that the ability to produce a true one rep max, all right, for even non-athletic type individuals is proportional to their experience in trying to do one rep maxes. And what I mean by that is performing single repetitions improves your ability to do single repetitions. Like, I know, I know, groundbreaking stuff here. But it's un, it's not surprising to me that an un, previously untrained female who's never done a single in her entire life cannot perform a true 1RM. I don't think that even with a uh, ton of training that she would get uh, as close to recruiting all of her muscle mass at once as a male who is at the same part of that, that sort of spectrum. Uh, but I don't think it's unusual to see a female improve to, and have that big gap. 
Leah, the difference between her 5RM and her 1RM is every bit as different as a well-trained guy's because she's done so many singles. Steffi Cohen, who's pulled, what, 505, 515 for a set of five, as a 123-pound female, the difference between her, you know, she's got a big gap. And why would you think that? Well, she's practiced singles a bunch, and she probably errs towards that athletic end of the spectrum. So, in any event, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing five triples, but it's only it's going to be a few more weeks, not like the rest of your you know years. The evidence suggests that at long-term outcomes, we're talking five, ten, twenty years, that those with who have undergone some sort of surgery, surgical procedure for weight loss, are the most successful dieters. They keep the most weight off the longest. That's what the, I know. I know, it's an unfortunate truth. I feel like, you know, Al Gore, just how it is, yeah. Oh yeah, there are plenty of people who do get the procedures done, who end up re finding a way to regain the weight. Um, but the typical, so, so just like, we all know people who diet, you know, who lose weight and keep it off for years on end. So that's why the American Weight Loss Re Registry exists, right? So those people have been pooled so we can get more information. Just like I think all the surgeons who performed, you know, gastric bypass or other type procedures on obese folks who ended up not losing weight would like to know, well, why didn't they lose weight? So we should have like American Weight Gain Society. The gains registry. The gains registry. <laughs> hey, do we just pull them? And it's funny, but I because they would want to know, and I would want to know too. What are the things that are most associated with weight regain? There's actually a, it's a pretty extensive pre preoperative screening that these patients have to go through to be able to get gastric bypass surgery done. Even if you have to be, make the BMI cutoffs, or if you qualify for the surgery, they do extensive like psychological, psychiatric counseling, behavior counseling. You have to prove that you can actually lose some amount of weight on your own before you get, are able to get the surgery done to prove that like it's possible for you to maintain the lifestyle habits that you'll need to maintain afterwards to try to avoid that. Of course, there's still some proportion that managed to gain it all back and more. I've seen patients who gained actually significantly ended up at higher weights than even preoperatively, which makes us wonder kind of like this concept of a registry. Are there some factors that we can use to predict that to kind of alter our choice of who actually gets surgery or not to yeah, or how get to the best outcomes from or those how, patients? Or how to prevent that, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I would like to know. Gains, can we not use that for the game? Not for the morbidly obese. All right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Am I a nerd? <laughs> Sounds like a BuzzFeed article. Yeah. <laughs> 22 ways to see if you're... Yeah. Would it be useful for them in the three Yeah. It's a, reason, it's a reasonable way to modify the end of the novice linear progression. But again, with the understanding, it's going to be a few weeks. No, because... You, so the, the reason for doing that is because you're not changing the volume, right? You're just trying to keep weight on the bar going up every single time. But when you're no longer confined to that being your programming model, I don't see a reason to do that. Yeah. Uh, the counter argument would be that if you do fewer reps per set, 
then maybe the older person doesn't get as sore. To which I would argue if the total volume is the same, there's probably no difference unless somebody has conditioned you to believe that you're going to get sore if you do a bunch of reps. And you, your physiology does not change so radically that you're no longer prone to the repeated bout effect yeah, and that you exactly can no longer right. get conditioned to training because you now have finished the novice LP, you don't get sore anymore you know, from doing more than three sets of five. Well, how right? often are you sore, for real? Uh, almost never. Yeah. Maybe the first week after a meet when I've peaked and, as you said, detrained. Yeah. yeah. And it's because, you know, and, and again, Austin, how old you're 29? 28. Yeah. I'm 32. So, you know, our typical squat, the amount of work, working reps per week, you know, between 40 to 70, depending on somewhere, somewhere in there. And that's a lot. Yeah. Deadlift, rep, 40, you know, 50, 70, bench, over 100, you know, working, so that'd be like six sets of five, you know, three sets of six, uh, five by five on another day, like, and you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much volume, but we just don't get sore because we've been training for so long and doing these things, it doesn't make us sore anymore, um, and that, that's a cool position to be, to be in, because you don't have to worry about getting sore, just get to lift. Uh, and that's that's how what happens when you keep training and training and training and training over time. You, just, you tend to not get sore. So a really good way to make yourself like super sensitive to any increase in repetitions would be to decrease training frequency to like once every other week, and only do like three reps, but then sometimes skip that, and then you know, and then you come back and you train and do anything, you're going to be crippled with soreness. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's one. Right. Well, one way to get really sore is to only see something like once a month and then throw a ton of reps at it. It's always novel. See, it's working. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Start the LP. So if you start the LP, you may start it twice per week, but then you comes up to three times a week, and then after that, you're in intermediate programming, and it's no different. It's just, you know, you're going to be added volume in as they tolerate it to improve their strength. That's, I mean, so if I, again, if I had a 75-year-old lady who came in untrained, says, I want to strength train, how do I do it? We're starting it twice per week, maybe one actual working set on her lifts on week one. Week two, it's probably going to be two working sets, right? And then it's up to three, and then I'm moving to three days the week after that. So by the end of a month or six weeks or something like that, it's up to a regular novice LP. Well, well, you'd be, you're you're not a novice training. then You won't anymore. be a novice. <laughs> You'll be in a good position. You're doing well, advanced programming, bro. You're going to be a world champion. Just think about it. Just think about it. If everybody in this room right now is still training by the time they're a certain age, you're going to be a world champion because everyone else is dead. <laughs> <laughs>
How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.